present moment by younger generation the younger generation in western countries has sufficient education beauty and wealth and although there is enough food clothing and facilities for sense gratification they are in distress indeed they are so distressed that they become hippies and the law of nature forces them to accept a wretched life thus they go about unclean and without shelter or food and they are forced to sleep in the street it was it can be concluded that one cannot be happy by simply performing pious activities it is not a fact that those who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth are free from the material miseries of birth old age disease and death the conclusion is that one cannot be happy by simply executing pious or impious activities such activities simply cause entanglement and transmigration from one body to another narottanda sapur calls this karma bandhan pasa king prachin barisar admitted this fact and frankly asked naradmuni how he could get out of this karma bandhan pasa entanglement in fruitful activities this is actually the state of knowledge indicated in the first verse of vedanta sutra atharva brahma jigyasa when one actually reaches the platform of frustration in an attempt to discharge karma bandhan pasa he inquires about the real value of life which is called brahma jigyasa in order to inquire about the ultimate goal of life the vedas vandupa panishad enjoins tad vidyanartham sa gurum eva vidyate in order to understand the transcendental science one must approach a bona fide spiritual master king prachin balisa found the best spiritual master narad muni and he therefore asked him about that knowledge by which one can get out of the entanglement of karma bandhan pasa fruitful activities this is the actual business of human life jeevasya tatva jigyasa nasya chet karma bhi as stated in the second chapter of the first canto shrimad bhagavatam 1.2.10 a human being only business is inquiring from a bona fide spiritual master about extrication from the entanglement of karma bandhan samsara om gyan tenandasya gyana janashalakaya tatsurunitamena
starting from Swayambhuvamari Nishatarupa and then their son, King Uttanapal, who had the son Dhruva Maharaj. And uh, Naradhuni had also instructed Dhruva Maharaj. And Dhruva Maharaj was guided in such a manner that he not only attained his desires, but he also ended up taking the darshan and the blessings of the Supreme Lord. And then moving on from Dhruva Maharaj, Dhruva Maharaj's son Utkal was not interested in um, King affairs in administration matters, but his other son took over. And moving on with the lineage, we, we heard the pastimes of King Anga, how he was able king, but then how he had a very notorious king like Vena, who was very cruel, so cruel that he used to even kill his friends, little boys, while he used to be playing with them. So then the sages decided to turn his body, and then Prithu Maharaj appeared. Prithu Maharaj had appeared from the right hand uh, of uh, King Vena. So you see, this is a very glorious image where the Lord Himself expands Himself as Prithu Maharaj and the Guru's uh, And Prithu Maharaj's son, Vijitasa, was also equally glorious. And from then on, after three generations comes King Bharisat. So, this name, Bharisat, the word Bharati, it is explained, means the Kusha grass in Sanskrit. So, and why did he have this name? Because King Vichimbati or King Bhattisar was very fond of doing Karnakana um, rituals. He wanted to make perfect material arrangements. So wherever he went, he would tell his men to grow uh, grass. So he could, wherever he went, he could do yajas and sacrifices. And to do that, you need to sit on grass. That's why it was needed for the yajas, since so he grow them everywhere. That's why he got the name Bhatti. So King Bhattisar was a pious man. There was nothing wrong in what he was doing. He was trying to make perfect arrangements materially by following the scriptural injunctions. So he believed in a higher authority and he followed it. But what was missing when he was doing his austerities and measures? He was not doing them as an offering to the Supreme Lord. His motive was still material, to make perfect arrangements for himself and his citizens. Narayanuni has now come to instruct him. But this is a very good example here as to how um, an individual is instructed by the great acharyas according to their caliber, according to the level of understanding. You see, in the previous chapter, we saw how Lord Shiva explained the Rudra Gita to the Prachetas. And who are the Prachetas? They are the sons of King Prithin Barisat. So, King Prithin Barisat had sent them off to the forest to meditate and become learned and wise so that they can come and do perfectly like he was. But Lord Shiva met them and, and took them to a higher level of understanding. And Lord Shiva gave them what was direct devotional service. He didn't talk in any convoluted roundabout way. He directly started glorifying the guna, rupa, naam, leela of the Lord. The name, form, qualities and past tense of the Lord. He glorifies the beautiful form of the Lord, the physical features of the Lord. And then he glorifies his expansions. And then he glorifies the potencies of the Lord. 
and then he explains the importance of um, association of devotees, and then he explains the importance of um, devotional service itself. So in this way, Lord Shiva has given him the topmost and the highest knowledge. And on hearing that, the potatoes felt grateful, and then this Rudra Geet they had chanted for 10,000 years when they went underwater. So Lord Shiva felt that they were capable of directly hearing the glories of the Lord and taking them on. And he related those glories to the potatoes. But, but in the in the previous few cantos before, when Vidura instructs Dhritarashtra, this was after the battle of Kurukshetra and the Pandas had won. All the sons of Dhritarashtra had died. And yet, Dhritarashtra was living in the palace of the Pandavas. And he was old, but he wouldn't go to the forest. So then Vidura, his younger brother, had to come and chastise him and gave him some counsel to say that now you are old and now it is your duty to give up this palatial life and go to the forest and meditate. But there he does not directly give him devotional service. He is not instructed on how to gain devotional service. Because you see, it is said that Dhritarashtra, because he was not actively opposing the atrocities caused by his own son Duryodhana, towards the Pandavas, so he had become so um, unqualified that he could not receive or understand the message of devotional service directly. So then Vidura had to instruct him to go and perform some yagyas and sacrifices in the forest and purify his consciousness in that way. And this was not direct devotional service which was mentioned to him. And it is not that Vidura did not know. Vidura Maharaj was himself a pure devotee of the Lord. But given the Consciousness level of Dhritarashtra, this is the only instruction he said would be useful for him. So in, in the same manner, so Narada has now come to King Bhargisa. Now Lord Shiva and Narada, they are all eventually sons of Brahma. Right? So in that sense they are brothers. So they are so kind, one brother is enlightening the sons, the other brother is come to enlighten the father or to guide him. So in the previous verse, Narakini asks a very straightforward question to King Bhavisar. He says that these fruitive activities that you are performing, they will neither mitigate or eliminate your misery, nor will they bring happiness. So then why are you performing them? He clearly asks this question. And you see, Bhavisar, in this text, he clearly says, he says, my consciousness has become polluted by performing these activities and my intelligence is now unable to, to understand. So, so he please explain to me how I can get out of the entanglement of this fruited activity. So in this way, uh, Narad Muni is now being compassionate to King Barisar. So it is mentioned, as Srila Prabhupada mentions here, how opulence, wealth, beauty, victory, which is what King Barisat is actually aiming for when he is doing all these fruity activities, they do not bring happiness. And a Vaishnava is always worried about the welfare of others. He is called Paramahadukhi. 
Srila Prabhupada, when he had gone to America in, in April 1966, he was living in a room, there was his typewriter, his books, and quite a few other things were stolen. So he had been struggling for many months, and now he had come to a stage where he was feeling a bit dejected. And he went to this office where Sumati Muradiji had her cargo ships and they uh, were scheduled to go back every now and then. So he could have just hopped on back on, on one of those ships and gone back because it had been a few months and he had met no success. He had lived with the other vows and then after that he lived with the impersonalist Dr. Mishra who wouldn't let him preach. And then he lived in this room from where these things had got stolen. So it was from one disappointment to another and he had gone to this office and he had told the manager there that I am planning to go back in a few months' time. And anyway, after saying that, then a few of the followers who actually came to know that his typewriter and a few other things were stolen, they said they were going to replace those things and they said they were going to find him a place to stay and he can move out of this room. Because Prabhupada no longer wanted to live here because he was thinking, what if the burglary again happens? But he ends up in a Bali, in a place which is so notorious that there are pages and pages that can be written, have Maharaj written in, in Vilamrita about how, um, what a degrading condition it was in. This is the most run-down and uh, poverty-stricken and unhealthy location in the whole of New York. Like Shilapapad mentions, mentioned, here they were, it was a place for ruined and homeless. It was considered a place where all of them lived together. The buildings were old, they were filthy and rat-ridden. <coughs> and even the places around, this was 94 Bowery where he was living. So basically it was on the second or third floor where he had the loft, which means it was a huge room, it was a big hall. And on one, in one corner there was a bathroom and a small kitchen and then there was not even a separate room for him where he could sleep, but just a small partition, a wooden partition from the ground and didn't even go up to the ceiling. But just a small room partition behind which he had his trunk and few clothes and he had a clothesline where he put his clothes and his bed where he would So he started living in this bowery in 94 number street. And here he was, the few of the followers started coming. But those followers were in, 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 in a very intoxicated state. They were only coming to him because they, these, these were the youth of that time, of the society, who had broken away from the mainstream society. They did not uh, feel attracted or they did not believe in the culture and the values and the social norms that existed during those days. They refused to um, accept them and they started to live on the streets because they just thought this is better than what they had when they were living with their families. And this is what Srila Prabhupada mentions in the purport that these, that we were from good families, but they were so disenchanted by the way of life that they started living in the streets. And they were trying something different that would give them some kind of bliss. They wanted to enjoy some kind of bliss, some internal happiness that they were looking for. And unfortunately, they took shelter of drugs, LSD. So it is mentioned that when Prabhupada was living here, when he used to go out of his, uh, he used to go out of his room.
room downstairs. At the doorstep also there used to be half of them lying drunk, unconscious. And in, in that state also they used to try to show him courtesy and make way for him. And Sheila Prabhupada acknowledged it. Because although they were drunk, they were half unconscious, they realized that this is a great Swami, this is a great saint who has something for him. So even in that consciousness they tried to show him some courtesy. And while walking past, it is mentioned that one or the other of them would often bump into him because they were not even able to walk properly, they were so wobbly that they couldn't walk straight. And in those days, uh, this whole area was sort of designated by the council, by the government for sculptures, artists and musicians. Because they need bigger spaces, like for example, a sculpture would need bigger places to put his paintings, put his art and craft work. Or the musicians needed big halls to put their musical instruments. And then a few of them would get together to play drums or guitars or violins so in this way. So then these are actually um, um, factories that were deserted. And so these were like storage areas of those factories. And then they were then converted into locks, which was used by, it's called AIR, Artists in Residence. So they were living in these kind of places. And why were they attracted to Prabhupada? <coughs> because Prabhupada was chanting. He was doing mantra meditation. And they were also trying to get high. And they thought that this kind of music or chanting will help them. And that was the only reason they were coming to Prabhupada. <laughs> that attracted. So even in the greatly intoxication states, they, were come, they, they used to come to him and they used to chant. So how Prabhupada ended, ended in this 94 number Bauri was um, one, of the, um, one of his followers who, used to, um, who knew him from his previous place and used to visit him there was moving in another state and he had this loft available. So um, he asked David Allen. David Allen was another young boy, he was a 21 year old boy who also had moved away from his family and had come to live in this area because he was also becoming um, attracted to these psychedelic tools, these things that would make him high and he can experience something supernatural or something mm -hmm. different. So in this way he was there, he was, it's mentioned as a 21 year old young, tall, handsome boy who looked very intelligent and smart. So um, he and Prabhupada moved in together into this place, into the Bowery. And he was very curious to learn what Prabhupada was doing because Prabhupada had this photo of Lord Chaitanya that one of the followers had painted for him because they were all artists. So he explained to one of them and they had painted this picture. So all he had in the name of an author was this picture of, of Lord Chaitanya and his associates. So he used to offer and do art in Kirtan. And uh, David would very um, interestingly watch him do this and he was trying to learn. And David was also listening to his philosophy because he was living with Prabhupada, so he was more, um, more getting more of Prabhupada's association. And Prabhupada also felt that he was he can improve. Although he was still taking LSD and other drugs, and he was still not clean, and he was still not maintaining all the, the desirable way of life that Prabhupada would have expected from him. But yet Prabhupada ignored those follies or weaknesses in David, and he continued to sleep. So things were working well for him in the Bowery because three times a week, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, 8 p.m. in the evening, he used to have uh, kirtans. So a lot of the followers and even a lot of newcomers had started to come in the Bowery. There was a restaurant nearby, his name, its name was Paradox. 
So a lot a word spread from there. A few of the followers used to go, and they informed other um, um, people there about this new Swamiji who has come to live in the Bowery, and he has some some meditation that can take them to a high that they can give give him some kind of bliss that they're looking for. So word spread in this manner, and a lot of new people started to come as well, and. Prabhupada would do Kirtan for some time, 8 p.m. he would start with the Kirtan, and then after 45 minutes of Kirtan he would speak for another 45 minutes, and then again he would have the Kirtan in the end. And they would all try to use symbols, although they were not perfectly playing them, and in their half unconscious states they were doing all sorts of things with the, with the kartals and the musical instruments, but he allowed them to bring whatever musical instruments they wanted to bring. And he would lead the Kirtan and they would follow. So in this manner, twice a week he was having the classes, and even in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning, he would have the kirtan again. Mm-hmm. And although they, these uh, followers were so intoxicated and they were up all night, yet they used to make an effort to come in the morning to hear his kirtan. So this way, it was a nice setup. <coughs> um, so um, Prabhupada was instructing David. So what happened was, although David was following um, whatever Prabhupada was telling him, yet he was not able to give up his intoxication. He was still taking energy. So this one time, what happened was that um, Prabhupada was in his little partition behind the partition in the place where he had his bed and his trunk and a few books to read. Suddenly, David became extremely disturbed and aggressive. And he was marching up and down aggressively. And he started shouting and yelling and moaning. And Prabhupada could sense that something is not right about this boy. But anyway, he stayed where he was. He stayed calm. And while marching up and down, suddenly he peeped in where Prabhupada was and right into his face. And Prabhupada asked him, what is the matter? Because there's nothing wrong. He didn't just went return and went back again to the hall and it was marching up and down where there were all the cushions and the carpets for uh, the mm-hmm. to take place. So Prabhupada could sense, and when he did this, Prabhupada became extremely disturbed. He realized that now this is dangerous because David was completely crazy. He had taken an overdose of LSD and it had made him completely bizarre. So then what Prabhupada did was he quietly left the Bowery and he came downstairs. He was out there and he said this, he thought he was not going back up again, not even to get his belongings. It was that dangerous. And while he was there in the street, he was thinking, has it all come to an end then? Just few weeks ago, things had just started to work. It was all going well. He was getting the followers. They started to um, listen to him. And then now, it was not possible for him to visit David. So where is he going to go? And then suddenly he thinks of this prayer, of this poem that he had written when he was coming to America in Jaladuta. And in this poem he had mentioned, Krishna, I, you must have got a plan for me. Otherwise, why would you bring me to such a place? Why would you bring me to such a strange land? So then he was thinking like this, and he was thinking, where do I go now? I'm not going to go back into that place. I cannot talk to David. And then he was thinking, if I decide to go back now, what will happen to these people? <laughs> so you see, although David had tormented him to such an extent, 
that he decided not to even go and get his belongings from upstairs. Yet he was so compassionate, he was thinking, how can he leave these people in this sort of state of affairs? They are all miserable, they need help. And this was not the first time David had troubled him. It is mentioned that a few times before, Prabhupada had mentioned to him not to put the soap on the floor in the shower because it was a hazard. And he had mentioned a few times, but then David got angry at him and he shouted at Prabhupada. And there were a few other similar incidents. And yet Prabhupada had tolerated this. But this time he realized it was getting beyond the limits and it was really dangerous for him to be there anymore. Now just imagine, he was a 70 year old man. He has no physical strength to actually fight out an aggressive young 21 year old boy. And on top of that, he has no money and he has no place to live and he has no friends. And yet, he is thinking, what will happen to these people if I went back? So this is called compassion. This is called that state of mind when you're actually not thinking of yourself but you're thinking of others, even in a situation where your own life is at risk. So anyway, Srila Prabhupada was also disappointed in shock, yet he did not take any drastic decision. He immediately called Kali Yajans. Kali Yajans was another person who was also trying different kinds of intoxications to get high, to get some um, some bliss out of all these intoxications. And Carl Yerjans, when he heard Prabhupada's voice on the phone, he immediately understood it is an emergency. So he went uh, straight away and he met Prabhupada. And he decided to bring him to his loft. He also lived in the Bowery a few blocks away um, from where Prabhupada was staying. And he took Prabhupada in. But Carl Yerjans was living alone. He was living with his wife, Eva. And they had a bunch of cats and dogs, and they were meat eaters, and Eva was a chain smoker. So now, just imagine Prabhupada, such a meat eating something person, and trying to live with these people who had no, I mean, more of ignorance. Their lifestyle was more of ignorance. So, um, he, anyway, he was given one corner there. Prashadam. That's such a thing, they were meat eaters, and Prabhupada wasn't sure when he could go into the kitchen and cook. And Eva actually felt, I mean, even for Carl to know Prabhupada from a distance and to learn things from him slowly was one thing. But to have him right there in their home, in their, his presence, was too intimidating for both him and his wife. So they were both finding it hard to look at him. And within a few days, Eva became so resentful that she, her behavior was rude towards Prabhupada. So Prabhupada once asked her to get a few vegetables from the market and she just said, go get it yourself and uh, a few other things. So then Prabhupada could feel the resentment and he also felt that because of him, he was feeling uncomfortable. And Prabhupada was not the kind of person who made anyone uncomfortable or put anyone at inconvenience. But you see, at this stage, uh, it is mentioned that never before did Prabhupada feel this unwanted or unwelcomed anywhere. He was here, he was living with a couple who didn't want them, who wanted him out. But where was he supposed to go? He had no other place. So in this way, Prabhupada, again, he was in a situation where he was thinking, maybe he should go back. But yet, he did not take that decision. He was almost on the verge, of was thinking, he was 
Krishna put him through so many tests, but he had so much faith in Krishna. Anybody else, after having gone through these kind of situations in a foreign land with all these strange people who had nothing to do with him, but would have left by now. But had it not been Prabhupada's faith in Krishna, he too would have left. But he had this faith and he kept reminding himself that Krishna has sent him there. There must be a reason why Krishna sent him there. So in this way, he hung on to it and after this was when um, Michael Grant and Jan um, Mukund Maharaj and Jan, they came in the picture and then the few of his followers, they helped him. And then he, he gets that uh, 26 secondary matchless gifts. And from then on, things were getting a little bit better for him. But up until this point, it was always, Prabhupada didn't know what will be his next day life. And yet he was living one day at a time and continued on. Just because of his strong faith in Krishna. So, so that's what Prabhupada says, that although all the Western countries had all this wealth and opulence, all these youngsters were from very good families, they were from very backgrounds, and yet they chose to leave their families and they were living on the streets. They were trying to find happiness. Because wealth and opulence cannot give you satisfaction, deep satisfaction. On the contrary, the more wealthy you are, the more disturbed you are because you have to look after your wealth. And because you're afraid that others might see it. So in this way, he, he, he mentioned, because he mentioned here, he experienced it himself, that how these youngsters, these young boys and girls, but just living on the streets, worse and beggars. So another another phrase that is very significant, Shiva Prophet mentions this this phrase Karn Bandhikasa about five times in this in this purport. Uh, so, which means entanglement in fruitive activities. So, he, this is what he's trying to indicate. That trying to make yourself comfortable with opulence, wealth, and other, all sorts of other conveniences is not the goal of life. This is fruitive activity, which will not get you out of the cycle of birth and death. It will only lead you to misery. So, then that's why he says, get out of this karma bandhan. Karma bandhan means actions that you perform, the karma that you perform. Whether it is good or bad, it will entangle you. So this is another thing. Not that we have to do good karma. We neither have to do good nor bad. And how is that possible? Just as Lord Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, whatever you do, you offer it to me. So whatever yajna or charities, charities or any act of service that you perform, it has to be done as a service, as an offering to Lord Krishna. And only then can it free us from the entanglement of fruitive activities. So in Mahabharata, there is a very um, um, detailed incident. We all know about the battle of Kurukshetra. So the fruit is the karma, the, the law of karma is very powerful. And after the battle of Kurukshetra, um, Maharaj Vishwar was very morose. He felt that he was responsible for the killings of so many soldiers of so many people and that made him very dejected and he was very disappointed. So then Bhishma Dev tells him the story of Gautami. 
So he says that once upon a time there was a very sagacious and tranquil lady. Her name was Gautam. And that lady lived a very simple pious life. But one day she comes to know that her young son has been bitten by a snake and he has died. So there is this um, hunter, his name is Arjunaka, and he comes to know that this has happened. So he becomes very upset. He comes to Gautam. He says, My dear wise lady, I have bound that snake with ropes, this snake who has bitten your son. He needs to be punished. And he says, Tell me, how do you want me to kill him? By throwing him in the fire or by chopping him up? So this lady says, Why do you want to punish him? Whatever has happened, it was predestined. My son was destined to die. I don't want to punish him because by punishing him, we will do the same thing what he has done. How are we any better? And my son will not come back if we punish the snake or kill him. So in this way, she said she will not do it. But the hunter was quite upset. He said this was an innocent boy and he has been killed. He said, what you are saying, that can be done by great men. Whereas people like me, when they are afflicted with some misery and something like this happens, they take revenge and they overcome their grief. So that is what I want to do. I want to take revenge and I want to kill this snake because then only I will be satisfied. But Gautami explains to him, she says, My dear Rajunaka, do not harbor any resentment because resentment is the cause of all pain. Brahmanas should not have any resentment, she explains. And he, she says, therefore we should not have any, any resentment or any, um, anything against the snake because he is not responsible. But then Hunter again continues, he says, you are just thinking of your son. Think of others. This snake might bite others and cause harm to others. For the sake of others, maybe we should kill him. And then the snake who is bound in ropes, he speaks up in the human voice. He says, My dear hunter, please do not think me to be the cause of the death of this boy. I have not caused the death of this boy. I was sent by Mrityu, dread personified. He sent me to bite this boy. So I am not acting independently of my, of, my actions are not independent. So I am um, also bound by the duties that I am supposed to perform. So in this way, he says that he is not responsible. Then, death personified comes and he speaks up. He says, I have sent this name because Kala, time personified, has instructed me to do so. And it is time for this boy to move on to his future journey and leave this body. That's why I had to do it. So, he says to the hunter that neither the serpent nor myself, death, are responsible for this boy to go. Then, time, Kala personified, he comes. He says, how can you blame me for causing the death of this boy? He says, this boy has such karma in the past that he was destined to leave his body at this time. So I am bound to give them the simple reactions of their past lives. Not only simple, good reactions as well. So he said, because of that, I had to send Mrityu and he had to send the serpent. And in this way, what has, what is, whatever is his due, he has got it. That is what he deserved. He was meant to leave his body at this time. 
and that was what was ordained by his past karma and that had to be executed so after telling this story bhishma tells vishnu maharaj that how can you consider yourself being the being the killer or the murderer of the soldiers when they were destined to die it is destiny so neither you nor duryodhan have killed these men they were meant to die in the battlefield this was the, their fate so you should not uh, lament on the death of all these soldiers so this is the effect of karma and proper explains that suffering and um, happiness there are just two sides of a coin you will get misery and suffering and that too will pass and then you will get happiness but that will also pass so they will keep coming and going so the in that sense we have to be equipoised or stay stable not become too excited in happiness and not become too morose in distress and she proposes further mentions that a devotee sees stress as mercy of the lord he understands that he deserves much worse than what he has got this is just a token reaction that krishna has given him he could have got much worse so therefore he is actually grateful for what he has and he thanks to the lord for what he is getting Prabhupada also mentioned in this text the prayer by Narottam Das Thakur. So, which means he is insisting again and again on our karma that this is how strong our karma is that it doesn't leave us. And in this prayer, Narottam Das Thakur's prayer that he has taken from a book called Prarthana, it is mentioned that Narottam Das Thakur is actually praying as if he is a neophyte devotee. He says that I have invited my spiritual death by not worshiping Lord Chaitanya. Due to my neglect, I have lost the transcendental treasure of love of Krishna. So now, just imagine, Rotunda Sahib is one of the pure devotees of the Lord, and if he is praying like this, he is thinking that he hasn't done sufficiently enough uh, to serve the Lord, to chant the holy names, to follow the instructions of Lord Goranga. then what should our condition be how should we be praying and he further says i rejected the real purpose of my life and strove for worthless things i'm drowning in the ocean of birth and death because of my own misdeeds so he is also blaming his own misdeeds or bad actions in the past for this kind of karma that he cannot take up completely the instructions of chaitanya mahaprabhu and he says i gave up the association of devotees to enjoy sense gratification in the association of common nonsense men and immediately my caught me entangled and entangled me in the web of rooted activity i have always done the most dangerous poison of sense gratification and therefore i could not merge myself into the sankirtan movement of lord chaitanya so in this way rotunda sahib prays in this way from prarthana it is called gauravahu So he rightly lamented that he did not pray enough, and he did not follow a lot of Chaitanya's instructions enough. So he actually doesn't deserve to live. He says, "Why am I living? 
What is my happiness? Why did Narottam Das not die long, long ago? So this is the mood of these Vaishnava Acharyas. And these are actually not, these prayers are not for them, but they are actually meant for us to understand what kind of mood and consciousness we are supposed to have if we want to get out of the entanglement of these fruited activities. So on that note, so this is a um, prayer, this is a bhajan called Gaura Pahu from Pratna. Gaura Pahu na bhajya bhajya That's the first line. So you'll find it in the book of Songs of the Vaishnava Tarih. Yeah? Just quote two lines. Yeah. Gaura Pahu na bhajya 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 any comments, questions? Yes, sir. So, from the story of Gautami, mm -hmm. looks like it's wrong to demonstrate either or anybody that it has to be. But it's all about the car and all happens because of this thing. So, how do we the justice system work? So, Justin Jumpa says, according to time, place, and circumstance. It is reasonable to, if you, we can't obviously have a murderer running around in the streets. So if we have such a person, we need to obviously, um, we need to be put in prison, put behind bars, that's reasonable. But it is just to indicate that this story is actually trying to signify to us that eventually it is a result of our own past karma. So if we do get any um, problem in our life because of other devotees or because, because of a third person or because of someone, we may take reasonable action to avoid it, but then at the same time, the suffering that has come to us was a result of our own past karma. That is what the point that is being made in this um, story. But yes, it is reasonable if anybody is doing unlawful act, the state needs to punish them. And this has always been the case that the kings and the governments are expected to punish the culprits or unlawful citizens. But then at the same time, blaming them for your misery is not to be done. That is the main point here. That we must know that it is indeed, yes, you may have stopped that person and externally they have done something wrong to them, so you want to take them to the law and you want to get them punished. But you should know that whatever they have done to you, the harm that has been caused to you, was eventually the result of your own past karma. You know, once Prabhupada was in the kitchen, he was cutting some vegetables, and his finger got cut. And then his disciples asked him, Prabhupada, why did you get this cut on his finger? He said, oh, this is nothing. This is just a broken reaction. My arm was supposed to get chopped off, but Krishna just gave me this small token reaction that I just have a cut on my finger. That is the kindness of the Lord. That's what he said when he got his cut. So you see, that has to be the consciousness whenever we are the other beings. Anything else? We have got plenty of time. But I, I want to ask you something. Philosophical, not Bhagavan. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the Parishal Society? Parimistic society and the sort of problems, endometriosis, ovarian cancer, this and that. Can you correlate what is the relationship between society and the 
Permission. Yeah, permission. Do anything what you want. Permission. Yes, sir. So we, the society, as you say, we have to follow, follow the daily Varnashram Dharma. So this, in this day and age, we are not following the even the normal Varnashram Dharma. And then this particular Dharma is an Asurik. You see, Asurik. Varnashram Dharma in which the mood is that me and benefit from me and what is in it for me, every task, every activity that we do, the, the sole purpose is what is in there for me, how can I enjoy it. So when you start living this kind of um, lifestyle where the focus is just on me, myself and I, then we are bound to face problems and all sorts of problems will occur. Enjoyment, enjoyment, enjoyment. Yes, it will eventually turn, the coin will flip and suffering will come. The more we try to enjoy, the more we will suffer. Absolutely. Like Radhanath Maharaj says, material desires equals to material misery. So the more desires you have, the more you will suffer because in the pursuit to get that, you will be working like a donkey. And that's probably the guarantee that in the end still there is no happiness to be. But if you have nothing, you suffer anyway. <laughs> I know which one I prefer. So at least I have a choice. When I have nothing, or someone has nothing whatsoever, or living on the street, they have no choice. Yeah. I'd rather be the other way. Have something in there. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be that people who have a lot of things are bad. This is what philanthropy is all about. A lot of people have a lot of things and help a lot of people mm -hmm. in a general way. There's other people who exercise philanthropy like people like George Soros, where all his income came from a moral, moral wealth. But then he uses his philanthropy in an, an amoral way as well. So it's yes, you are right, Prabhu. In this day and age, to even have a generous heart and to think of others, it's very rare. To find someone to think of others, yes, you have enough for yourself, and then you want to use your wealth or opulence or facilities in service of others, that's very rare to find. If that would have been a, the, the mood of a lot of people, we, this earth would probably be in a better place because we could move, we were all in a lot of fighting. But because people do not have that mood of thinking of others, the self is the center. That's why we are suffering. But unless, the, unless you govern yourself, you can't be either way. You can't be good or bad. It all starts from yourself. Yes. You have to be self-realized first. And then even if you have, if you have a lot of wealth and opulence, you will still not be suffering because the consciousness is not to enjoy whatever you have. You have to self Unless yes, you self yes. um, Eventually, if the goal is not self, but the goal is the Supreme Lord, then you will see all living beings as the brothers and sisters. You see, even in Christianity, there is a concept of universal brotherhood. And that only comes when you put God in the center. As long as you put self in the center, it will be, we are living a selfish life. But unless you achieve and have all these things, you have nothing to compare it with. It's very easy for someone who's had all these things and realized it means nothing. Yes. And then say, I need something else. But for someone who has never had these things, 
it's a constant yearning, so they constantly better than to give us. They never get to the point where they say, oh, it's worth nothing. Yes, absolutely. That's true, because even Prabhupada says that, he actually says, says, he says that those of you who are wealthy, who are very educated, and you've seen it all, had it all, done it all, and yet you know that there is some emptiness in your heart. So you understand that even after it's really wrong to material opulence and wealth, it's, it's, you still have an emptiness in your heart. It doesn't give you satisfaction. That's That's when he says that actually, when you are frustrated, this is what's mentioned here, when you are actually frustrated, that's when you start questioning what is the real purpose of life. Why are we here? What is the relationship with God? He says that is when we actually start living like human beings. Then, we, then yes, then we start questioning the purpose of this life that we have, this human form of life. If it, till then, it's, it's the same. You're just living like animals because you're just satisfying your senses, you're in the sense of gratification, and you're thinking of yourself. You cannot think of others. So those people are innocent. They, absolutely, they were innocent. Those, they, were, they, they didn't know what to, to do, what to take, so they took that path. But because of their innocence and detachment, that's what Prabhupada says, they were already detached. It was easy for him to preach to them because they were already detached. And when he said to them, chant, Hare Krishna, they chanted. So yes, they were, they were innocent. They just didn't know what to do. They had no other option. Yes. Whereas between Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavad Gita, he was doing fruitive activities. Although they were 
being done by following the injunctions of the Vedas, but there are still fruitive activities. Can we understand that it requires a submissive attitude from the disciple to be instructed? Yes, absolutely. In both cases, they both had a submissive attitude and they both were given instructions. Acceptance that they need, I need guidance? Yes, they both accepted that they needed guidance. Arjuna was actually put in delusion for us to know about Gita, for the whole world. Arjuna had knowledge. He already had but knowledge. But he was just so that Lord Krishna can go the whole Bhagavad Gita in 700 verses. Yeah. In 45, 50 minutes. Sure. On the better field. Yeah. So that was the plan. Right. Thank you. Yes. This reminds me of uh, how Nath Muni arrived with Nalakueda and when he gave as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that case, for example, they were <coughs> not, not submissive, but they still thought it was. Of a Vaishnava, there is some good good will, there is something good for us. They will never do it out of ill will or out of becoming offended. Whatever they do, it is eventually for our benefit. So even though they are cursed because of their nasty attitude and disrespect, yet it purified them and they actually got delivered. King Paritus was put in their situation seven days. You will be written by his name. That was the perfect plan of Lord Krishna. So that the whole Bhagavatam can be spoken by Sudhir Goswami. Yeah, that's right. Krishna, you have a question? Um, yeah, um, did Krishna speak Bhagavad Gita for 45 minutes or 90 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> what is the question? Did Krishna speak Bhagavad Gita for 45 minutes or 90 minutes? But I have heard from the lectures like Chaitanya Prabhu and a few other devotees have actually said that it is uh, somewhere it's mentioned is 45 minutes. So somebody has said 90 minutes, but it was, yeah. Approximately. Approximately around that. But I don't have to exactly answer for this. Good question. Okay. the class here. Grantha Shila Bhagavatam Ki, Shila Prabhupada Ki.